0: Scented plant-like creatures, the Dringir have a strong connection to the dark side of the Force, thriving off chaos and imbalance. The Dringir see all other forms of life as food, and they prefer their meat to be alive when it is eaten. For some time, these evil creatures lay dormant on an abandoned space station until they were unwittingly released by a group of Jedi that found themselves marooned there. As the beasts arise from their slumber, they return to their warlike ways and look to satisfy their voracious hunger. With the Jedi spending more time aboard the station, they begin to experience
1: wicked visions and feel a sense of impending doom linked to the Dringir. The ancient and twisted Dringir represent a new threat to the noble
0: Jedi and the galaxy at large.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another exciting episode of the Wampus Lair podcast. This is episode number 415, Into the Dark. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt. And with me, the affy holo and geode to my Leox jossie, we've got Carl LeClaire and Greg Katz. I call Affy
0: Greg. I'm sorry. You can be the rock geode. That was the intent. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Greg, I'm so glad you're with us again to go into the High Republic.
1: He's not talking because he's a rock. I'm, I'm the rock. Yeah, why, why are you talking to me then? Uh, no. Thought- uh, it is such a pleasure to be back with you guys, and I will absolutely be Geode. I would have uh, taken him as my choice anyway. So uh, thank you for that, Jason, and, and thanks for having me back on. I'm, as always, excited to be on Wampa's Lair, but especially excited to talk High Republic.
2: Yes, we are back at it again and I'm so
0: excited. I did it worked out so well because last week I I was so looking forward to bringing back Tales of the Larians and unfortunately our guest um had had an accident. She fell and essentially broke her jaw last week. I felt so bad for her so she's she's going to be out of commission for a while but luckily um a Mutual good friend of Greg's and mine, uh, our friend Ben was available and decided to come on and talk a test of courage. So this is great. Kind of within this month, we'll have tackled every book from high Republic and um, fair to say, I think all three of us loved all three of them. Um, so I'm excited to, to get into Claudia Gray's uh, entry into this world with into the dark with the two of you this evening. Um, so yeah, Uh, (laughs) good book. I know we're going to have a great discussion about it. Um, but before we get into our discussion on into the dark, um, I need to, uh, share, obviously I, I, for the, for the first time in a long time, forgot to post our poll from two weeks ago. Uh, we asked you two weeks ago on the show, what your favorite force power was, and I never shared it on social media. So I never gave you the platform through which to share that. So my apologies, we won't be going over that. Um, we'll just save it for a later date because, Jason, do you realize we are just a few days away from March 1st?
2: It's impossible. That's That cannot be. It's too early. <laughs> <laughs> this is impossible. Yes, thank you.
0: Um, <laughs> Where are those droid cars? Uh, <laughs> no match for droid cars. Yeah. Uh, the Okay, we'll stop voting audience now. Um, um, so uh, for any of you, if you are kind of new to the Wampa's Lair, uh, several years ago, the StarWars.com website started a tournament called This is Madness throughout the month of March. So it was kind of a great, really fun way for us Star Wars fans to enjoy the March Madness tournament um, if we aren't particularly college basketball fans. Um, And right every day of the week, you had a new character matchup. So StarWars.com stopped doing that in 2018 for whatever reason. So Jason and I have been running a This Is Madness tournament since then. And we've always done character matchups. But Jason, we wanted to try something new this year. Um, And I noticed last year that a few other podcasts were also doing um, similar type tournaments throughout the month of March, which I think is just really cool that other folks... Um, may or may not have seen what we were doing, but decided to do something similar and, and have fun with it. So rather than doing a character matchup for our this is madness tournament this year, we are going to be doing epic scenes from Star Wars. So that's right. We have compiled 32 scenes slash moments across all of Star Wars um, storytelling. And and these are all um either movies or TV shows, we have picked 32 moments that are going to comprise this year's, this is madness tournament. And you can start voting on Monday because Monday is March 1st. Crazy to think. Um, yeah. Later this week, I will be sharing with you the bracket of all 32 moments so that you can print it off, make your predictions now have fun with it. Um, so going to really encourage you if you um Use social media to be sure to, to share the, the bracket just with using, using the hashtag TWL, this is madness. So I, am, I, I had so much fun compiling this list. Um, of course, I asked folks on Twitter to help us out with some of their iconic moments. So that was really helpful because I, I pulled a lot from there. Um, so I hope you all have fun with it this year. I can't wait to play along myself.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this works out because, uh, we're, we're changing things up a little bit and it's kind of nice to, to do something a little bit different. So this year, looking forward to seeing what people
1: think. I'm uh, first and foremost just upset because I don't think I've done anything since last March 1st. But it is exciting (laughs) to have This is Madness come around again. Um, I I think you made a great decision. And, you know, sometimes when it's the character versus character, people, some do favorites, some do like who would win in a a blaster match or whatever. So I think this is great because this is going to be everybody thinking about it the same. Which one's your favorite? What do you love most? And I'm excited to see what happens with it.
0: Me too. Me too. And you know, um, every year we've done the tournament, we've always gotten some, um, jabron who likes to be a jerk about things and be like i can't believe you put these people in round one and it's like oh i'm sorry me sacrificing three hours of my free time to make this bracket doesn't please you um (laughs) so um just a reminder there's obviously a lot of jerks in fandom so uh and i'm sure i would not be surprised i'm hoping it doesn't happen with this too but i wouldn't be surprised if somebody's like i can't believe you have these two iconic moments against each other in the round one just like block move on that's what i do with those, <laughs> those fools from now on but um this is there to have fun with and if if it's not fun for you just don't play ain't nobody holding holding a blaster do you <laughs> so um
1: well and i won't give anything away but you did let me peek at the bracket and it's really cool um and what i really appreciated about it most is that it's from everything i mean to get 32 epic moments you went to all the different um movies and shows and and i think just visual media but it's gonna be really interesting to see kind of where fandoms opinions are and how something really iconic from the clone Wars stacks up against something from you know solo or rise of skywalker which is is so fresh and new or something classic so uh, i think it'll be a lot of fun
0: yeah 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 me too i I'm just so darn excited. I always print off two copies of the bracket to do my personal picks and then how I always try to like do what I think folks will pick on the show. Um, And I will say most years, my personal picks never win, which I don't expect them to. And my my first the first two years, I was really close with all of my expectation picks. Last year I was way off. So, you know, it's (laughs) it's always fun. Um, So, of course, that that bracket will be shared on all of our social media later this week. it will be very easy to find. Uh, So, yeah, again, encourage you to play along. Um, And one final piece of of update before we dive into the book, we have a copy of Into the Dark by Claudia Gray to once again, once again, do another giveaway. So all you need to do to enter into the giveaway to to get a free copy of Into the Dark is is on our Twitter. All you have to do is, uh, so this will be posted later this week, but you simply like it, retweet it, follow us if you don't already. Or if you don't have a Twitter, you can simply write us a review in the iTunes store. Um, both of which will get you entered to win this copy of Into the Dark.
2: We are very excited uh, about this book. And so we want to make sure that you get a chance to read it too, if you haven't already. Mm-hmm. Um or- don't have your own personal copy of it so definitely uh, join in on that giveaway um, but I, I feel Carl um, yeah. and, and Greg we should we should definitely inform everybody um, that from this point onwards spoiler warning yes uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we are talking anything and everything about this book no particular order or format uh, we're just going to dive into it here in a second but uh, spoiler warnings abound because everything is on the table. We're not going to uh, shy away from anything in this book. So if you haven't read the book or you're halfway through it or something like that, you might want to come back and, and uh, listen to this podcast uh, when you are finished with it.
0: Indeed. Yeah. So, um Yeah. So here we go. We're gonna we're gonna get, we're gonna get right into this. Uh, so that said, um, Greg, just start with your general response. What you know, just kind of your general, you, you know, you, the first time you read the book. I know you just recently reread it because um, you were going to be on the show with us. What is just kind of your overall take on Into the Dark?
1: Sure. Um, I'll I'll just give the background that. Um, so I has I think I mentioned last time I was on uh, I got access to preview copies of the Justina Ireland and uh, the Claudia Gray books back in October. So I read both of these over the course of like three weeks in October, um, but didn't have access to the Light of the Jedi or the Charles Soul books. So. Um, it this was the second book I read. I, I read Justina Ireland first because I knew that book was coming out first. And they've always said you can read them in any order. But I was like, oh, let me just at least try to do that. Um, so this was the second book I read. And then, right, I reread it uh, last week um, after now, of course, having read Light of the Jedi. So uh, both books readings provided kind of different versions of, of this book in some ways in a really cool way. Uh, Because the first time I was definitely learning a a lot about this era and the world. Um, The Justina Ireland book is fantastic, but it's, it's very small in scope and that's, that's not to its detriment, but it's focused on a small group of characters having a specific adventure. So I didn't really get that much of a, a hint about what the larger world of the of uh the high republic was um so that being said i uh really enjoyed this book when when i got to it claudia gray has always been a favorite of mine since i picked up lost stars on a whim trying to learn about what would be happening in in the force awakens um and i've kept up with all of her books since um including recently rereading uh master and apprentice which is a a phenomenal book in the new canon um so i went in with Pretty high expectations, and this book largely delivered. I think um, when I put it down, I think my first text message to, to our group chat was, um, essentially, this is the weirdest Star Wars that I've ever read, but it's good weird. Um, it shows that I think the High Republic is willing to do things a little riskier, a little different, uh, and I thought back in October that that might turn off a lot of fans. And I'm not sure that it did because the reception has been pretty positive. Um, but I do think that the High Republic gives us the opportunity to not be some version of the rebellion fighting some version of the empire um, and really do things uh, really different. Um, and so that's what excited me about this book. And I think it delivered on those promises. Um I I might say it's not a complete slam dunk. I have a few things that don't really work as well for me personally, but um, overall I found it really satisfying both times I read it.
0: Love it. Love it. What about you Jason? What was your general takeaway from it? Uh, Jason? All right. Well, Jason's not there. So I <laughs> I will
1: give I think he I think he's geoding. Yeah, I, it
0: must be. Oh, there, there it is. is.
2: Everything just like went out for me in the middle of, of Greg's last
0: good statement, and I, was like,
2: I can't hear anything. What's going on? And I had
0: a panic attack for a second. So. Um, well, long story short, Greg liked it. Um, <laughs> I- <laughs> uh, but what about you, Jason? What was kind of your general takeaway? I know once again you listened to this twice, I believe, right on Audible. Yes, um, so I that's... listened to it
2: twice. Um, I I will say um, the the narrator for this is not uh, Mark Thompson, um, but he does a very very good job. And I'm pulling it up up on Audible right now, so I can tell you who the narrator is. Um, Dan Bittner uh, is the narrator for this book, um, and he does a very good job. Um, I, I think he was a, a very interesting book there was a lot in here that i enjoyed uh in terms of sort of jedi lore i suppose um uh, you know finding out what what different things are uh in the jedi order different terms way seekers a fun thing uh to explore and i'm sure we will talk about that here in a minute uh but there was there was a lot of really cool like jedi lore tidbits that i just ate up the overall story was something to me that i was just like huh this is interesting at first um i enjoyed it but it just wasn't something i kind of expected at all and then on the re-listen uh to it i was like okay okay this is fun and and this this has potential um and and the the Drengir are an interesting foe, um. And to be perfectly honest, after this last listen through, I'm not sure we've seen the last of them. But um, we'll take uh, I want uh, you know, I'll take that as a, a topic for later on. But overall, <laughs> I I really enjoyed it. Um, I love the characters the the characters of the the vessel the the ship here uh plus the jedi characters i thought they were all very interesting and very um great characters uh to explore and hopefully we'll see uh at least most of them again somewhere else down the line but um yeah no i i quite enjoyed it overall what about you carl where do you fall
0: yeah i mean I, I think i'm with both of you in the general consensus that i also really liked it um so I read it uh jeepers. Um I'm trying to remember when I borrowed the the copy you had Greg. I, th- I want to say it was like early January. Um maybe maybe early December. I can't remember exactly, but I I loved it my first read through. Um so 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 much. And I think the the thing that I like the most about the book is the characters and um kind of going off with a little bit of what you were saying Greg, I I think Claudia Gray is probably the strongest, for me, Star Wars writer in the new canon. And I and I say that because of her ability to write such compelling characters. And I love that she gets to just create her own new characters. I mean, she wrote you know iconic characters like Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan incredibly well. Uh, but when she gets to create her own characters, ugh, like I, I just found myself caring so much about every single character in this book. Um, from the crew of the vessel to the Jedi team, um, so I, I will say that's the biggest highlight is just Claudia Gray's writing style. Um, the Dren, the Dren gear really threw me. Um, I'll be honest, my first read through they really disappointed me. Um, my second read through, I've I enjoy them a little bit more. I don't love them, but I do like them. Um, and it was cool getting something. On top of the Nile, obviously the Nile are going to be the, the kind of main villains of the High Republic era, but the Drengear presents something new mainly because they're dark side users um, or just entities of the dark side, which I thought was really neat. We've never gotten something like that before. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I would say, you know, overall, I would clearly I, I would definitely give this book like a nine out of ten. I mean, I still feel for me, Light of the Jedi is the strongest of the new of the three. I I, agree with that. I think that's, I mean, in some ways it's kind of comparing very different things. I mean, you're comparing a middle grade book to an adult novel and a YA novel. So, you know, maybe that's not a very fair comparison, but light of the Jedi was the one that captivated me the most. Um, And then into the dark and test of courage, are, I would say equally fun. Um, So that said uh, let's, let's get into this. Let's start talking about some of the stuff that came in to the book um so i want to i just want to hand it over to the two of you um i've been doing a lot of talking already so what's what is what's, where do you want to go first where are we going first my friends <laughs> okay uh, there there's a question that
2: i wanted to ask both of you that's been burning in in my uh my mind about this book from the minute that uh it first happened on my first uh listen through of this this audiobook um when des rydan uh Quote unquote dies uh, In the middle of the book Did you believe it or not Because I didn't hmm. I didn't expect I, I was like I, They kept trying to convince you that he was dead And I was like but there was no body I know that you know. I know that you know those helix <laughs> rings Or whatever have the potential to just Vaporize people and I was like I don't I don't think he's dead I don't think he's dead at all um, Maybe it's just I, I've watched too many serialized television shows over the years uh, to believe death uh, unless you bury someone. And even that sometimes doesn't stick. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. What, what, what did you guys think? Did you believe that Dez was actually dead uh, the first time around?
1: I'll, I'll confess, uh, I'll do you one better. I, I mean, I was reading these pretty quickly, and that's kind of a flaw in how I read, is I read too fast and I miss things. I was bewildered by what happened. When they're suddenly like, Des is dead, I'm like, what? What did what did I miss? And, and then I went back and I, you know, really looked at it more closely, and I realized it was this kind of very sudden, very obscured incident. Um, so I don't know that I disbelieved it. You're probably a little ahead of me on that score, but I will say it then felt false in some ways. And I think it's because, you know, they, they mourned, but not really. And it didn't feel very Jedi and it didn't feel like they got closure. So of course, when it came back around to like, Oh my God, he's, he's still alive. Uh, he was just transported. I was like, okay, that makes much more sense. Now it kind of clicked in and like, this is, this is more of a star Wars story for me and more of what I understand a star Wars story to be. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Uh, I did believe it. My first read through. Well, I, I can't say I did my second read through. I knew the truth, but, <laughs> 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 um, but I will say, yeah, I did think he was dead, and I felt like they gave us a just justification of why there was no body because Wreath comes to the conclusion that he was just vaporized, so of course there wouldn't be a body. And I thought, you know, especially when they get back to Coruscant, kind of in, in Act Two and in, in, in the book, the way Wreath has to really mourn him and then mourn Orla. Um, or not Orla, excuse me, uh, Jorah, excuse me, his, his, you know, his master that was killed, um, in light of the Jedi, I will say that, yeah, I, I, I really did think Des was dead. Um, because I felt like, uh, that was there to really, really bring wreath to the lowest. Um, and I mean, it still does, It still, it still acts that way. Um, so, um, it was a surprise to me. I mean, once, Once Reith ends up on that planet and the Drengear are like, bring the other one. I'm like, oh, it's obviously dead. like that wasn't a surprise to me at that point. But I did initially think he was dead.
2: Yeah, I it it was just so sudden and uh, for me and then it it honestly felt a little bit like the the book was was trying to convince me too much that I was like, nah, nah,
1: this
2: (laughs) can't be be real, right? Uh, You know, at one point I was like, oh, well, maybe he is like I I started to be like, well, he could be dead. I mean, they did, you know, blow up an entire ship full of important delegates uh, in the the middle grade book (laughs) in uh, Test of Courage. Um, Test of Courage. Yep. 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 okay, Okay. Okay, good. I was like, wait, I, I said Test of Courage my brain went, no, it's Heart of Courage. I was like, no, that's not it. Is it? I don't know. Um, but yeah, you know, I was like, well, they could have. And they've killed, you know, Jedi in in every story so far uh, that I've read. So, I mean, it's entirely possible. But uh, it just for whatever reason, it, it didn't quite convince me. Um, but I was just curious to see if if that was a consensus among readers or if anybody else was actually surprised that he came back or not because... I, for whatever reason, I just didn't believe it from the get-go.
1: <laughs> well, I'll say I think that's the Whovian in you, right? It's a very yeah. Doctor Who conceit to kind of uh, kill somebody, quote-unquote, in the first act and then find them in the third act. So I yeah. think that's why you got it. Um, <laughs> that's true. And I'll use that to transition to, to something that I think was, uh, you know, obviously the main structure of the book is this idea of this space station and, and us having to all go there as these ships are stranded and hyperspace is closed. And there was something very familiar about that construct to science fiction like Doctor Who, right? We've seen a Doctor Who where they can build only like two sets and and tell a story. It felt a lot like that, or even something um, close to Alien. Um, Mm. I I think I I have that right, the first Alien, right? Where you're you're trapped on the spaceship and, and the spaceship starts to feel smaller and smaller in some ways as it goes on and, and you're kind of trapped in there. Um, and I, I think I, I really enjoyed that about the story just as much as I enjoyed Light of the Jedi being you know, across the whole galaxy and telling us everything at once. It felt cool to, to get that little bit of claustrophobic a little bit of space horror in moments right when you have suddenly a, a plant scratches somebody and we then later learn that that was because the Drengir attacked and so on. Um, and then this central mystery of the idols, where you know as soon as they show up, you're like, "Don't touch them! Don't! What are you doing? <laughs> Don't do that!" Um, it felt like screaming at a, a, a theater screen or your television screen. Um, but so a lot of that really worked for me. I guess I would call that the general atmosphere of the space station and the book itself.
2: Hmm. Yeah, it was a it was a, a good uh, a good setting. Um, I thought. I thought it was also very int- very um instead of just being like a standard space station, it was very interestingly approached. And obviously some of that is, is due to who, who and what the um the Dren gear ended up being. Um but the idea that it's you know it's just these wide open windows to space like your your the the uh to get from your ship into the, the central area of the space station the the tube is like completely clear, and so you 're like walking in the stars on your way to this forest in the middle of a space station. you know I was like, okay, that's really cool um, but yeah it was it was a very uh, interesting and very um, well crafted and constructed uh, setting, in my opinion, so I did like it
0: yeah um. It's uh I I mean I I usually like those stories in Star Wars that tend to be a bit smaller, a little more personalized. Um you know, uh and, and Light of the Jedi like you said Greg is is kind of this massive epic story. Um and and Ben and I talked about this a little bit last week when we were to, to kind of breaking down Test of Courage. Um but both Test of Courage and Into the Dark are kind of those smaller intimate Star Wars stories. Um I'd say Into the Dark is a little bit more expansive than Test of Courage. Um, uh-huh. but it is still a very, uh, uh, much more personal story. Um, and I feel like every single character, every single main character from the crew, of the maybe not Geode, <laughs> um, but like <laughs> Leox, <laughs> Affy, you know, Orla, Wreath, um, Dez, Comac, they all kind of get their, their own arc, which I really enjoyed. Um, but, uh, you know, that said, um, the thing that I kind of want to bring up right at the right at the the start here, because I want to get your impressions on uh, on this, is the Dren gear themselves. Um, mm. This was the one part of the High Republic um, I have loved everything like head over heels, but this still is the one thing, kind of like a thorn in my side, if you will, that I just, oh. I just they <laughs> good pun. <laughs> um, they they are okay, like I. I'm still not 100% sure they work for me, which is fine. I'm not saying that it's bad or dumb. I will say that the the YouTube the the YouTube video short about the Drengear I thought was really cool and it, it upped my like of them tremendously. Um but that said, what did you two of you think of these um plant dark side creatures? Uh I just it was very very weird to me. Um uh, you know kind of like you insinuated, Greg, I mean there is something very different about this story um i'm curious how they stood up for the two of you
1: go ahead greg uh i i actually really liked them um you know i do think as much as i love star wars there's a problem with uh it always being too much the same um, and i even love something like the old republic and they're like we're going a thousand years before the movies you know and here's an r2 unit that looks Five percent different than the one you know and love <laughs> and so it it really hasn't always worked for me in that regard um there have been some exceptions to that and and so I, I shouldn't paint with too broad a brush um but i thought the drain gear were a wise choice to go very different right um and and more than anything they reminded me of the yuzhan vong mm. um where we had a a new threat that was totally different from the Empire, right? The Empire's threat is technology and how they wield it and the weapons they build and so on. Um, and so here we have a, a very organic uh, villain and, you know, to me, the there's kind of this big Gag to them I, I don't know if gag's the right word, but they are an invasive species, right um, and so I, I think of up here in New England, uh, when you cross over i think mostly between Massachusetts and Maine, there are these big signs about clearing off your boats because you're gonna bring the invasive species to the lakes and ponds in maine, and that's all I could think of is those hyperspace coils I'm like you gotta clean off your boat, man, if there's a little <laughs> twig on that it's gonna it's gonna invade um so so that worked for me as kind of like um something new for star wars right and and i'm not somebody who tends to say that's not my star wars so so um i would probably never conclude that about them but to bring something new but yet in a way that makes sense, right? Um, especially back during this era, it's dangerous to go to different planets. It's not a well-mapped galaxy and you don't know what you're going to encounter. Um, and I think Reef says there are multiple sentient plant series, uh, species that are known. Um, but to have this one kind of infused with the dark side, or I don't even know if I necessarily interpret it as they are born of the dark side, but that they are dark themselves. Right. I think of cheer um, the dark side swirls around someone who's about to kill, mm-hmm. right? And so these, these Drengeer is just pure invasive species. Let's spread out. Let's conquer the whole galaxy. That to me is pretty exciting. And um, it's just ha- going to be another challenge to the Jedi. Um, so the last thing I'll say is, you know, one of the taglines they said um, made them excited to write the High Republic was, what do the Jedi fear? And I think the Nile are definitely an answer to that, but the Drangir are as well, because it's a very powerful enemy that is not out to kill just because they want to be greedy or have power. It's just their basic nature is to expand and to take over territory.
2: They are sort of hunger embodied in mm. a sense. You know, it's you know, they're always just talking about their meat, you know, you know other beings as meat and, and wanting to uh, go in search and conquest and devour and all this stuff. And it's very much uh, almost, I won't say primitive, but a very basic driving sense that you get from them. It's, it's a very instinctive uh, and uh, primal uh, yeah. sort of, sort of mentality and, and, Uh, and opposition that you have to face. Um, I thought it was a little strange, but not super strange because uh, I, 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 you know, you alluded to this, Greg, I'm a big Dr. Who fan and I've been going on a a big rewatch of, you know, classic Dr. Who. And there's a couple of those stories that have, uh, you know, plant species that are the villains. Um, and so this wasn't too out of my realm of of uh, of, of you know reason for me so I, I uh but it was kind of interesting to see the star wars take on it um, i did have to go uh onto uh, starwars.com uh they've got a a data bank uh entry on the Dren gear uh right now if you inter- if anyone is interested in seeing what one of these things looks like um and it's it definitely kind of helped me picture what was going on a lot better. Um, once I looked at that picture, uh, cause I had a very different idea in my head. Um, for whatever reason, I was thinking they were more like the Ents in, uh, Lord of the Rings, but, um, with these, these things are, are odd. I won't lie, but, um, I, I think it worked. Um, not as well as, uh, you know, I like the, I do like the Nihil better as a, an opposing force in this era, but I do think that the Drengir sort of give us sort of a twist on, on evil, um, in a sense, and, and the dark, in a sense, that I think is going to be interesting to further explore. Um, they didn't completely eliminate them though. And so... And now the Drengeir know that there are others out in the galaxy that know about them. And I wonder, I wonder if anyone will find a way to accidentally bring them out into the galaxy again at a very inopportune moment during the conflict with
1: the Nihil or whatever. Um, well, so. spoiler, spoiler free, but they released the covers for, I think, the April comics issues, and I believe the main High Republic series has a Drengear on the cover, so uh, your impulse is correct. We haven't seen the end of them. Ah, well then, that,
2: that would uh, that would this is when I start exploring StarWars.com Uh <laughs> Let's see here. Let's hear some
1: more thoughts from you, Carl. What, what didn't work for you while Jason explores? <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, what's funny is listening to the two of you talk about them, I, I, my appreciation for them has already grown more. Um, and I think the reason they didn't work for me the first time through, and I remember texting this in our group text, Craig, uh, one of my favorite elements of the first act of this book is this element of mystery about there's this darkness, there's this pervading darkness that keeps kind of giving these really dark visions to Orla and Comac. And there's something so off putting about that. And and it immediately reminded me of uh, my favorite sci-fi book series that I just got into last year, which is the expanse um, and the expanse books have such a powerful element of mystery as you try to uncover who are these aliens that Shot this proto molecule at Earth, and who destroyed them, and all this. There's such an element of mystery to those books that's um, both captivating and terrifying. And I felt that as I was reading the beginning of Into the Dark, I was like, "Wow, what is, what is this mysterious dark force? This is so cool." And then when I found out that they were plants, I was like, this is just weird to me. Um, it's like, is this like Batman, Batman and Robin with George Clooney and poison Ivy? Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I hope not. Um, but I think I, I really, really, really like your um, analogy, Greg, of them as kind of this invasive species that once they take root somewhere, they just continually self-perpetuate. And, and it's always in, in order to do so, they have to eradicate what exists there. Um, so mm-hmm. I really like that, that elementalness of them. I just visually like find it hard to, to see. It doesn't seem visually very captivating to me. Um, so that's, I think that's where my disappointment came in. It was more of just an, I brought an expectation to what I thought might be at the end of this dark mystery. And then when I got it, I was like, oh, that's not what I wanted. Um So, but, but like, again, like that's me bringing my expectations and not getting my expectations. But, um, I think even your, your star Wars analogy, Greg of them is the Yuzhan Vong works very well. Um, it's cool to just get something totally different. Um, it's, it's not the Nile. It's not a proto empire. It's nothing like that. It's just this species that is just inherently imbued with the dark side. Um, and not in some force way, like they don't, they're not particularly force users, it doesn't seem like, um, but they, they really are the pinnacle of the dark side, which is just consumption, constantly consuming others for the benefit of yourself. Um, so I think that, that kind of thematic element does actually really work for me.
1: Um, you two nailed your pop culture references, so I want to add the, the visual that came to mind first and foremost for me was um, I, a, a seminal text for me as a, a kid was Darkwing Duck. And Darkwing Duck has a villain named Bushroot who has, like, a Venus flytrap, like, pet. So the first time I read the book, that's all I could picture was this, like, yapping Venus flytrap, like Darkwing Duck, because uh, my son's been watching it. Um, and then the other one um, that actually didn't occur to me till uh, Jason was talking so well about the hunger and the spread and all that is um, I was a huge fan of uh, Seaquest growing up, which was kind of... NBC trying to rip off Star Trek, I think is, is fair to say. It was about a submarine, and there's definitely an episode of that show where like one of the crew members picks a pretty flower while they're on some underwater colony, and then it like sinks the whole submarine because it's it's an invasive species. So uh, I think that's now on Peacock. So go ahead, tune in. Our discount code is no wait, we, we don't have a sponsor. Sorry, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and uh, I'm. I think in star Wars visually more than anything, they remind me of dirge, the uh, villain yeah, from the Tarnakovsky, Cause he's got those kind of ropey muscles and body structure. And that's kind of what they're portrayed as. Um, and that's really cool. Cause he's another one of those characters who he gets blasted down to, you know, like a couple inches of vine and you see it crawling away. Like he can reconstitute himself fully from that. So there, there might be more precedent here than, than we expect.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think what was what also, especially on my second read through, what I, I, I liked even more about them and, and appreciated was the fact that uh, those idols seem to have been placed there by the Sith, by ancient Sith. right? Yeah. The, the Sith yeah. encountered the Drengeer and were afraid enough that they essentially had to cast a spell to keep them locked in there. Um, and I think that that's really tantalizing to think about is this is something that even the Sith were afraid of. Um, yeah, and you know, like what does that mean then for to be a dark side user? Apparently not all dark side users get along, <laughs> you know, which mm-hmm. does make sense, but um, who have thunk? <laughs> right uh, it, 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 did the two of you notice that as well, like am I wrong with that detail that I picked up, or is that right like it it was the well, sith uh, who are the ones that are responsible that is, for imprisoning them?
2: That is right, you know they 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 talk about the the blades that glow and everything, and then one's like, no, no, no.' These are not the same. The other ones had red blades. Um, you know, uh, that was the, the ones that awoke on the space station when uh, Orla Jareni and uh, Comec Vitus were, were confronting them as they tried to put the uh, idols back in place. Um, and,
1: yeah. Well, well and, and there's a different section of the book that references the Great Sith War. So we got a lot of... I think it it would be called recanonization at this point that they'd never contradicted a lot of that material, but um, they it it seems clear to me that they were being sure to note that they hadn't forgotten the old Republic material and that there was at some time a galactic conflict of Sith versus Jedi and seems to be that the Sith encountered the Drengir some some point in that conflict and and locked them in um that's very tantalizing i don't know if that's video game potential there were rumors a couple weeks ago of kotor 3 finally coming together um or it's potentially you know there were rumors for a long time that that's what the game of Thrones dudes were working on was was the old republic so i think there's a reason those references are here
2: Mm, great point yeah yeah Um, Uh, and it is interesting that the the sith would be the ones to lock them away because, uh, in my experience, the Sith, you know, generally are are seeking after power, whereas the Drengeer are seem to be driven by hunger. In my mm. uh, my estimation of what's going on here, mm. so uh, it's interesting that the hunger still comes after the power <laughs> seekers. So um, and they don't differentiate. <laughs> Who's, and yeah,
1: who's, I, I want I want to offer one more. If you're really looking for a mystery, um, it has now been confirmed that this is Snoke's space station from a later comic book series. Did you know that? I did not know that. So, uh, the Rise of Kylo Ren comic book, which is um, where uh, Charles Soule wrote that, and it came out, I think it was like three issues before Rise of Skywalker and two after, or it might be the opposite, two and then three. So, and uh, this I'm going to only mildly spoil it, but the Kylo uh, leaves Luke's uh, temple, Luke's, Luke's academy, and he goes to meet Snoke immediately after. And Snoke is... On this space station, and he's uh, living in the arboretum, or like relaxedly walking around. So that also opens up a lot of possibilities at the complete other end of the timeline about what this could possibly mean and and how it might be tied into him. Did he finally tame this space station? But um, there were suspicions of this to be true, and then when they did the the uh, Dren Gear uh, High Republic YouTube video. The visual of the space station was exactly the visual from the comic, so it's oh. like it was cut and paste. So, <laughs> so there's a lot more going on here. Just like he worked in Euphrona, uh, Charles Soule has been playing us for a long time, <laughs> and I'm interested to see where it all builds to.
0: That's so cool. I, I I only I think I read the first two issues of that, and that was it. Um, and I, I mean I saw excerpts. That makes I did see excerpts of that scene where. Where Kylo goes to meet with Snoke, and it's clearly like on a forested area, so that's that's really cool that this could be. Well, it's obviously somehow connected, um, ah. but to your point about maybe you know a little bit of this difference between like the Sith's desire for power and conquest as opposed to the Dren Gears. The Dren Gears is it's they don't care about power; they just care about consumption <laughs> you know yeah. they're they don't want to rule over anything they just want to devour everything and in some ways i feel like that is a lot scarier um <laughs> yeah so it, that that that's something that's a lot harder to
2: turn aside <laughs> yeah
1: yeah so. um, and it's it's also exactly the yuzang vong right so mm. um there was a stage in that invasion where um, I think it was as Jason was learning more about the force, not you, Jason, the other Jason, the one with the C. Uh, he <laughs> encounters somebody who tries to convince him that Palpatine saw the Yuuzhan Vong coming. And they essentially are saying like Palpatine wasn't evil. He saw that the only way to repel this would be to be completely organized and completely militarized. And all Palpatine was trying to do is get everybody to line up to fight off this invasion. And so it feels to me there's some remnant of some echo of that here where the Sith were disciplined in that way and could conquer the Drangir. Now, when you have a Republic that respects democracy and freedom and, you know, open travel between its worlds, uh, you're not going to be as prepared for something like this as the Sith would have been.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I, I'm, I never realized that that was actually in there, um, about, uh, yeah, I remember seeing that in like a meme somewhere that the emperor was aware of the Yuzhan Vong's potential invasion. And that's what the empire was all about. I didn't realize that was actually in one of the books though. That's, that's kind of cool.
2: Um, At least- was trying to convince Jason of that I'm not
1: yeah exactly Jason's right I don't think it was necessarily truth but it okay. was a version of truth that made a lot of sense in the context of it yeah, yeah.
0: okay um uh, well something else I want to hit on and I feel we f- Jeepers. We're, we're not even really talking about any of these incredible characters yet. And I, I want to get to that. But um, yeah. one other thing kind of in this theme of recanonization, like you said, Greg, uh, I loved when when they actually bring the idols back to Coruscant, they bring them into the Jedi Temple and they go into um, oh, I'm try, I'm going to try to remember the name of it, the pit of the deep or what is what is the name of shrine, the, shrine in the, the depths. depths? Yeah, shrine in the depths. So kind of at the, the center of the Jedi Temple, we learn here that the Jedi temple was built on an old Sith shrine. And what's interesting is I actually just recently read uh, the new Jedi Order book, Traitor, which is about Jason Solo's imprisonment with the Yuzhan Vong and his escape onto Coruscant. Um, And he learns that there, that the temple was once a a Sith temple. Um, So it was cool to kind of get that re-canonized, to use your term, Greg. Um, But I thought that was really, really neat that the Jedi themselves um, have built Uh, you know, their own temple over this shrine of the Sith. And it actually reminded me of something in in Christian history. So like in Christianity, as the Christian church was becoming more and more dominant politically um, in kind of the early middle ages, what they were doing, and this is where we get the, the celebration of Christmas in December is—they basically would take, you know, what they considered pagan rituals, and they'd be like, "Well, we'll make them forget it because now we're going to make that ours, right?" So it was kind of like a reappropriation. Um, so we've seen Christianity do that, and I'm sure you know lots of other things. I mean, Hitler reappropriated the swastika for goodness' sake. It used to be a symbol of peace in Hinduism, and now it's a symbol of hate. Um, so, but it was—I just thought it was really interesting how the Jedi themselves reappropriated the Sith temple. Um, and it's, it, it always makes me wonder is like, is that a good thing to do? Like, are you trying to pretend like they didn't exist? Are you trying to eradicate their history? Um, are you owning the fact that it was once this thing? Um, cause in the, in, into the dark, we learned that the, the shrine in the depths, there is a meditation thing built over it. So like they actually have to like move things and walk down these stone steps that were carved by the Sith themselves. So it's, there's a lot of, uh, preparation to even access this space. Um, what did you two think about the, you know, this fact? I mean, yes, it's kind of, it's, it's not necessarily something new, but it is obviously being recanonized. Uh, did you guys like the fact that that's in there?
1: You go first, Jason.
2: Oh, the, yeah, I, I love the, the fact that, uh, that there's this shrine in the depths and that it is, uh, you know, a whole, an old Sith shrine and, and things like that. I love that this is here. Um, and And it's been alluded to and sort of mentioned about um in other material you know palpatine that this is this is what Palpatine goes to uh you know when he is deep within his imperial palace once he the empire takes over um and it's mentioned i believe in the the Tarkin novel i think is where that's mentioned um but uh yeah, no, this is this is really really fascinating and it's it's sort of been talked about in other material, you know, both canon and now legends for a long time that this might have been in here um or something like it might have been here, but now we actually, we've actually seen it in, in you know and and got the definition of it and sort of some of its history uh now in this uh in this story here. So, um it was it was really fascinating um because if i remember correctly in, in this book as we we go into it it's being told from orla's perspective and she's you know sort of revisiting the history of it and and how you know it's been you know quote unquote purified um and that it's it was originally built around a vergence in the force and that the sith had found it first and then the jedi came and took it over later um but the steps the stone steps were still built by the sith and that still survives so that while the the dark side you know shrine is no longer there there's still a remnant of what they once had that's still there so
1: So uh, my first ever celebration was uh, the last time it was in Anaheim, and I was the guest of my friend Jen, uh, a really good Star Wars friend who said, you just uh, finished your graduate degree, I'm buying you a ticket to Celebration, come sleep on my couch and go to Celebration. Um, and I loved it. And I was so grateful for the gift. And the first day she was like, let's go to this Clone Wars panel. And I was like, I don't want to go to a Clone Wars panel. There, did you see there's an AT-AT on the floor? I want to go check that out. Um, okay. And so she dragged me to the Clone Wars panel. And I, I I had watched Clone Wars. I wasn't against Clone Wars, but I really wasn't that excited about going to it. So she dragged me, but it has always been the absolute coolest thing I was ever in the room for in terms of star Wars. Cause this was the panel that revealed the bad batch. This is the panel that talked about the Cad Bane Boba Fett episodes that were canceled. And one of the things that Pablo and Dave Filoni revealed is that this was going to be in the clone wars that we were going to go into the depths of the Jedi temple and see this Sith temple beneath this. So when I get to this part of the book, sorry, I know that was a roundabout way to get there. I I wanted to give Jen her props. But when I get to this part of the book, I just realized I think this is pure George. I think George set up and told Filoni and then that entered into the holocron that this is really uh, something George believed in and that there was this uh, Sith temple underneath. And then this idea of the virgins um, really also projects it forward to me again. And I thought about the virgins story and the Empire Strikes Back from a certain point of view. And it reminded me that not only did the Jedi take over the Sith and build on top of it, but when Palpatine rises to power, he takes over the Jedi Temple and makes that his imperial palace, right? He then controls the virgins again. And it sounds just fascinating to me as a a storytelling potential to start thinking about the places in the galaxy that we might've been fighting over for a really long time. And, um, you know, it could easily be a video game, right? It sounds like, okay, bring your Sith to this planet, bring my Jedi, we'll fight them out. Hmm. Um, but I think there's, there's really deep canon possibilities there and where my mind goes is the cave on Dagobah, because that is an organic tree yet there is something manufactured there. There are clear steps there. And so if we are hearing that the Sith and the Jedi spent generations going around the galaxy playing King of the Mountain on these vergences, I am really excited to think where else we might encounter that idea.
0: Yeah. What a cool yeah, galaxy that, brain moment there, Greg. Yeah. <laughs> That's cool.
2: I, I like the idea that that, that cave is a vergence. Um it would make perfect sense with everything that we know about it. So mm-hmm. I don't see why it wouldn't be. Yeah. I love, that. I love that.
0: Um, yeah. Which and is I, why I, the I,
2: chosen one being Anakin, uh, a virgins being located around a person is such a weird thing. Mm-hmm. The Jedi. You know, great point. Uh, you know, a virgins in the forest, a virgins, you say located
0: around a person, like, what like that's not possible right you know, except good point is. good yeah, point that's yeah right jason so yeah and i know yeah. you know jason not long ago you and i were, were talking a lot about how um you know this the fact that palpatine had 20 years of mm-hmm. 20 years plus to explore the mysteries of the sith um, uh-huh. and especially being able to do so probably by accessing the shrine now that he has the temple you know, there's mm-hmm. again, no reason to think that he couldn't have come back, you know, again, like, like we said, when we were talking about it, we get that that doesn't work for a lot of folks for episode nine, but it does make sense that he was able to unlock some sort of crazy Sith mystery. Um, uh, yeah. So I want to, you know, Jeepers, we've, we've been talking nearly an hour and we haven't even really talked about any of the characters yet from the book, <laughs> which I, for me is kind of the strong point of the story. Um, yes. I Jason, you brought this up early early on in the episode, and I kind of want to just hit uh, something I've loved that the High Republic has continually done is just kind of expanding our knowledge of what the Jedi looks like because that's kind of the point of this mm-hmm. era um yep. right like, I think one of my favorite things in light of the Jedi was the character Porter Angle and this idea of where a Jedi can go when they retire um the The thing that kind of grabbed my attention about the Jedi in this book was the concept of a way seeker um and i love how uh, orla gerrlani is planning to be a wayseeker and uh you know a wayseeker is is such a cool concept it's there are these jedi who act independently of the council and they simply seek where the force is calling them um so i i don't know if wayseekers still exist by the time we get to the the prequel trilogy um i Unless there's evidence to say that there is, I'd almost say that they probably aren't. If they do exist, it's probably even fewer and far between because Mm -hmm. I get the impression that the prequel council is much more authoritarian than the High Republic Jedi council. Um, And I, I love this notion that the Jedi are allowed to go be Jedi and yet be divorced of the whims of the council. Um so I really liked that concept of the wayseeker and that Orla especially her character arc is really one trying to grapple with this reality that the Jedi aren't supposed to have um you know instinctual emotion and she's a character and we get this a lot and obviously the flashback story with her and Komak um that she is someone who felt like she failed the force because she didn't follow her instinct and rather followed the, you know, the uh, kind of the dogmatic view of the Jedi. And it kind of created a bit of a failure on that previous mission when she was younger. Um, so I love this idea that she wants to be a way seeker because she feels like she needs to reconnect to kind of this more purified form of the force, something that's not filtered through the, you know, the, the doctrine of the council. Um it, what did you two think of uh, of this this notion of a way seeker? Um, I I
2: liked it. Uh, you know, obviously, I, I, any sort of new information on the Jedi is definitely going to pique my interest. Um, but it does sort of seem like something that Qui Gon Jinn would have uh, would have really considered. Um, mm. You know. I just I think there's probably a, a, a duty, uh, a sense of duty in him that probably kept him from becoming a way seeker. Um, but it definitely does appear like something that that uh, Qui Gon Jinn would have been interested in uh, doing. But I, I I like the idea that it, this is an option and that uh, the the Jedi Order, you know, it, it's not. Common, but it's not unheard of at this point for for a jedi to become a way seeker so um i i don't know the the idea that uh just being led by the will of the force wherever it takes you uh rather than being um not subservient but uh you know obedient to the the guidances of of the order and the council
0: so Mm -hmm. yeah
1: i uh i thought it was one of the oldest archetypes that star wars hasn't um drawn from enough the lone samurai the gunslinger in the old west Mm -hmm. uh to see a jedi who um is, you know, to steal the D&D parlance, he is lawful good. They believe in good, and they will do what they need to do to to do what is right. Obviously, she, in the case of of Orla. Uh, But to not worry about the bounds of of an order. Um, And really, more than anything, I think we've already met one. It just hasn't been called that. And her name is Ahsoka Tano, Mm. right? Especially when we meet Ahsoka now in Mandalorian, Um, we have someone who is not bound by any order, who uh, at some point said I am no Jedi, but is now in an episode of television called The Jedi, and doesn't decline the title when offered to it. Um, I think she's she's a model of this right that um she's not going to uh announce herself to the galaxy she's not going to tie herself to the republic but it's just going to be free to go about the the galaxy righting wrongs and following her own agenda uh we'll see ahsoka the television series coming to disney plus in 2022 uh but who knows where that will go but it does seem to me that that's the kind of model for for or orly or Orla or orly yeah or La. Um, Orla Erly, Orla. Orla <laughs> um and you know i i mean if that feels unconvincing i think it can be as superficial as they both have white lightsabers right that this mm. is like the model and, and and what does the white mean the white means that you are unaffiliated you're not blue or green and you're not red you're you're white you're pure you're you're unfiltered um and, and just as a character, I, I found her really compelling, and I, I was excited to see her relationship with Comac. We again got a little of that, like, hints of, like, romance that was never acted on, kind of, like, or, or a lack of attachment, I thought. Um, but, I, you know, if I if I were to bring up my biggest weakness in this book, uh, the flashbacks didn't work for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that was my failing as a reader that I, I don't, Tune into them as well, but I actually found myself disappointed whenever I turned the page and saw we were about to flash back. Um, and and I kind of feel that way sometimes in Master and Apprentice too. So maybe I'm just a bad Claudia Gray reader. Um, but I, I I think it's partially I don't want to leave the now, and I just I'm less interested in that. And and so it's it's good to hear a little bit of what uh, you were both saying about like how some of that helps to us to understand her. Um, but the idea at the end that our boy Geode goes and helps her pick out a spaceship and we could get another story of her just cruising the galaxy in her spaceship, doing whatever she feels is right. Um, sign me up for that series of novels or that comic book. That sounds really exciting to me. Mm. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. Uh, what a great connection to her and Ahsoka. Um, yeah. That's so cool. Um. Oh man, so many questions now, but I, it, I, that just makes me want to ask a million more questions, but I'm going to keep it to the book. Um, to your point about the flashbacks <laughs> though, Greg, um, I also found them not particularly exciting. Um, that was another one of the, the few things from the book that didn't fully captivate me. Um, and again, not that I didn't like them. And like my first read through, I was like, all right, what was the point of these? And like, I mean, I, I kind of saw, I mean, it's it's ultimately a lot about explaining why Comac and Orla get to the point that they do at the end of the book. Um, I think it's also, it's kind of intended to be um, the kind of larger galactic worldview of the, of the Outer Rim at that time, right? Their they're kind of reluctance to join the Republic, um, is because they're existing in what I will call nineteen twenties America, which is this extreme isolationism. Um, right, there's there's this desire to not connect to something bigger because of all sorts of reasons, I'm sure. Um, but it part of it is obviously the character arcs of Comac and Orla, but I think also the idea that um I don't remember the names of those two opposing worlds. Um but ultimately Iron Oh, thank you, Jason. Mm-hmm. Um but yeah, they're you know they're kind of this commentary that uh, the outer rim wants to stay out of the republic because they think isolationism is the way to go. But they ultimately learn that it's only by working together, by by diversifying and growing, that you become um, better. Uh, so so I appreciated that part of the the flashback, I guess. Um, but overall, they weren't the most exciting part of the book for me either. Yeah. Well. It,
2: Here's the interesting thing um and I almost missed it the first time listening to the book but the uh the lady who gives the end speak the speech at the end at Star um, Starlight Beacon is the captured yeah. the surviving mm-hmm. yep. uh hostage from that and Starlight Beacon is in the system of those two worlds like it's it's basically you know right near where the moon was from that 25 that flashback, you know, uh, incident. So, um, but yeah, so that's, that's an interesting thing, you know, to to go from, you know, 25 years, uh, to be completely isolationist, even from the neighboring planet, uh, together to being so open to the Republic and the Jedi that you have starlight beacon built in your planetary backyard. Um, is kind of uh, a very interesting uh, turnaround. So, yeah, oh,
1: the, that was a nice reminder, Jason, and it, it just makes me think again about reinforcing this theme about how history happens in layers. And this is the Jedi Temple over the Sith Temple over the Virgins. and we have the the space station that has the Amaxites and the Drengeir and the Sith and now the republic and the bind guild and and so exactly another example of that the planets that didn't get along and now they're the point of unity with the space station and what will be the next layer on top of that so really good point mm.
0: i thought it was yeah. I, I will say the one other neat thing about the the flashbacks was the fact that the huts are involved with that that story arc mm. right it's the huts mm-hmm. that kind of work with it's kind of, I think they're called the directorate which is led by a yep. Sot character which i thought was cool um and they're trying to draw these Jedi out to kind of embarrass them and just show again to the Outer Rim that, hey, joining the Republic, these Jedi protectors, they're kind of a joke. So um, <laughs> I, th- I thought that was a neat little element and, and also very fascinating, obviously, that the, the Huts are still a, a, already 200 years before Phantom Menace or like a, a, you know, kind of this very powerful criminal syndicate. Um, so I thought that was kind of neat.
2: Yeah. Well it they're kind of, you know, in a in a sense, one of the authorities out in that area of space at this point, um, you know, up until the point that the Republic starts moving out to the outer rim. You know, there there's really sort of no law and order. So, you know, where do the huts go? Outer rim.
1: Um I, I think Phantom Menace tells us that whatever the Huts end up doing in the High Republic era works, right? Because Tatooine is hut space and is under control of the huts and Qui-Gon's hesitant to go there for that reason. So yeah. I think I think we'll see more of them and we'll see why they are able to assert that power so much.
0: You can't take a Royal Highness there. The Huts are gangsters.
2: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
1: <Panaka. Captain.
2: laughs> <Panaka>. oh, <laughs> um but yeah, I I did like the, uh, the flashbacks, but I'm, I'm definitely a fan of that sort of storytelling anyways. Um, so that, that it's just sort of something I, I, I enjoy. Is, you know, as we uncover something interesting and mysterious about a character or, or, or significant about a character, we flashback to why that's significant. Um, I, I do enjoy that sort of storytelling anyways. Um, it's more of a show-don't-tell Form of storytelling, um, although that I think might work better in visual medium than it does in written medium. Um, which and maybe that's why listening to it worked for me. Uh, mm. it, the flashbacks worked for me better, um, but I don't know. Interesting. Um, that's just a yeah thought I had um, that as I was talking. So anyway, but yeah, uh, I I enjoyed them. Uh, they were definitely not as the flashbacks were definitely not as. Uh, you know exciting or interesting as the current story but uh i did i did enjoy comac as a character in general and so getting and i think the flashbacks really were probably a bit more about him than orla e- even though she is important in them i do think the the flashbacks were definitely more about uh comac than they were about anyone else so,
0: yeah. Um, well, and I'm glad to just kind of going from that. Uh, and, and I promise I'll stop bringing up the points here and let the two of you share some of yours. Um, but I will say one of the the central arcs for particularly Orla and Comac throughout the book that really resonated for me was this idea of right. How the Jedi are, are not supposed to form attachment and they're not supposed to grieve and, and how difficult that is for them. Um, so I, uh, I want to find my particular point here. Give me one second. Um, oh, so when Comac goes back to the council um, when they get back to Coruscant after the you know the initial the craziness on the station, Comac goes to them to report that Des had had you know died there, and he's really really bothered by kind of their apathetic response. You know, again, just kind of this. Well, he's one with the Force now. Um, and it immediately reminded me of the scene in the Revenge of the Sith novel when Anakin goes to Yoda for advice about his dream. And Yoda essentially says, oh, you know, like, don't be attached to anything, like learn to let things go. And I remember in the novel specifically, again, we're getting Anakin's inner monologue and he's like, Yoda doesn't get it. Does he even know what it's like to love someone? And I, I got such strong, similar vibes in that scene with Comac. And for Comac, again, it, what's what bothers him so much is what he almost interprets as a cruelty of the order that they have you, you know, a master take an apprentice and they, they form such a strong bond for decades for some of them. And then they're expected to just not care if one of them dies or when they go their separate ways. And he he kind of sees this as kind of a cruelty of the Jedi. Um, What did you, what did you two think about that particular notion?
1: Well, uh, re- rejoice for those that have joined in the force. Mourn them, do not miss them, do not. Right? That, I think you're right to link those. Go ahead, Jason. I just wanted to quote Yoda. Yeah, well, fair <laughs>
0: enough. It, uh,
2: it's, it's, a, it's a good quote, and but it's also one that I'm not sure that the Jedi really follow because we have a funeral for Qui Gon in the Phantom Menace. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A, an entire funeral. The Jedi Council is, you know, most of the Jedi Council is present to mourn the passing of Qui-Gon Jinn.
1: Across uh, half the galaxy to attend. It's not like it, it was at the temple itself. Yeah, good point. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And then in the Clone Wars we had the you know the funeral for the Jedi that fell during the attack on the Count or on the temple. Um and we see the, the big funeral with all the Jedi present and things like that. You know, it's it's sort of a mantra, but it's not necessarily well followed. Komak is someone who is seems very, very literal in the way he he understands things. Hmm. Uh, and he's heard the teaching and then has... He, he also internalizes it all in a way that I think is somewhat a bit... There's a reason why he needs someone like Orla around him because he has this way of saying, well, that's what the teaching says, so obviously I have to... You know, I can't express anything. You know, that was kind of the idea I got from him. Is like, oh, well, the teaching says, you know, you can't, you know, you, you should rejoice for them. So I can't express any sorrow. I can't. Whereas even in this book, uh, at the end, when we, we have the sort of wrap-up, Wreath is getting ready to have a vigil for Jorah, for his his master. And he invites... Uh, Des to to participate, and Des would have gone except he's leaving um, to you know on his bearish vow, which is interesting. Um, but you know it, it's something where I think Comac takes it way too literal and causes more suffering for himself than is necessary. Um, and that's just sort of the way that it it appears to me in the way that he. Interprets the the code and uh, the the order. He he takes the the letter of the law rather than the spirit of the law, in a sense. So
0: that's a great read, Jason. I didn't pick up on that at all. That was <clears throat> that was not my interpretation of it. So I, I I appreciate that different perspective. That's that's a really good point um, because they do certainly seem to. Uh, to honor things like that, even if he doesn't choose to see it that way. Mm -hmm. Um,
2: I I will say he's not entirely wrong. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the, the, the grieving process is very truncated when it comes to the Jedi. They do mourn, they do honor. um, But I guess maybe grieving isn't something that they do. So he's not entirely wrong, but I don't think he's, 100% right either.
0: Good point. Um, Something else that was big for Comac that, that I enjoyed and and specifically he kind of makes this, you know, at the end of the book when he uh, chooses to, to accept wreaths request to to be his master. Um, Something that was sprinkled throughout the story is the fact that Comac finds, the idea of dark side and light side to be somewhat of a violence to the force. He finds it to be a bit disruptive that they bisect the, the primal living energy of the galaxy is I think the language he uses. Um, And he talks about how the Jedi's hesitancy to really look at the dark or to ever truly embrace the dark he he feels like might be a shortcoming and i think that's something he kind of presents to wreath at the end of the book is like this is something we should look into together because we went into the dark <laughs> pun intended and you know it's something that we're we as jedi don't do enough of um you know and i and i feel like that was that was a big theme that was kind of introduced um, in Last Jedi, which I, I will sadly say I don't think it gets resolved at all in, <laughs> in Rise of Skywalker. Not in a not in a very powerful way, at least. You know, this idea of healing light and dark um, that that idea, which is I think very profound, just doesn't really get an answer, at least in the movies. Um, in my in my uh, opinion, but um, I don't know what it, what do you think of that, Greg? This this idea of uh, of Comac holding this this belief that that separating light and dark is somehow a violence to the Force.
1: Uh, I definitely agree with the sentiment you've both voiced, I think, which is that he struck me as a very Qui-Gon-esque character, that it's somebody who starts to see the failings in the order around him. Um, and I think that this experience with the dark um, has made them nervous about what they're unprepared for. Um, you know, in Wreath's case, um, you know, I think the title works so well for just about every character. Wreath obviously wants to be safe in his sanctuary. And so Into the Dark for him is is Into the Unknown. And I'm avoiding singing a Frozen song to you yep. all right now. Uh, yep. But it is this path out of the comfort zone and into the the darkness that that the world holds. And I think there's a compelling case that when he encounters the Nile, it's his naivety that prevents him from really recognizing what's going on of knowing the signs. And I think that was present in light of the Jedi as well. While, while it's not the, you know, the, the Jedi of the prequels have been totally snowed in and just tricked by Palpatine. It's not to that extent, but I I do get a sense from the first two books here. Well, and and a test of courage where there, there is some actual darkness present. Um, I really think there's a sense that the Jedi aren't ready for whatever's about to happen, that they are at their the peak of their powers, but they have their blind spots. And I think he's hitting on one of them. Um, And, you know, part of that blind spot is how they so deeply misread the idols that they assume That, you know, that they must be evil themselves instead of understanding that perhaps they could be holding evil back. It's almost like it doesn't occur to them that there could be something larger and invisible threatening them on that station. It has to be the idols. So... I think that's an exciting story uh, potential there as well. And I really liked, um, you know, since I touched on Wreath, I'll say I really liked his character. It did felt like feel like a little pandering to us nerdy uh, guys who read Star Wars books instead of going out and experiencing the world. Um, but I really like the, the arc at the end where he, you know, I don't think he feels like duty bound to go. But I think he legitimately wants to go to the frontier because he knows the person that cared about me the most in this world, knew this is what I had to do. And the ongoing refrain about um, crossing the Kyber Arch um, is a reminder that all of these characters are standing on the shoulders of every Jedi who's passed, but particularly the ones now who they've lost in this adventure, the Master. Um, And, you know, they they didn't... Dez ended up surviving, but they lost him to the Order in some ways with his vow he'll take. And so they owe it to those Jedi in the past to keep... Marching forward and keep spreading the light, um, and and you know the animations they put out, which I think are just fantastic. They all end with that image of like a beacon searchlight, kind of spanning the galaxy. And I sense that Comac and Wreath are are going to be doing just that. They're going to go um, now that they're not as afraid. They're going to go peek into the dark corners, see what monsters are awaiting them, and help the order prepare for that.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah Yeah. um oh good
2: um yeah no I, i uh i often struggle with what i think about the you know the balance means uh balance of the force means you know light and dark and things like that and how they are supposed to interact so um it was just very interesting to have another take on that um and definitely something else for me to consider, you know, uh, it's it's one, I will say, one character's uh, interpretation of, of how things go doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's fact in the rest of the saga. So I just want to caution people about that. Um, but it is definitely an interesting take and an interesting way to look at the idea of light and dark being separated like that. Um, and that it is a violence to, to split the force into light side and dark side, um, to the force itself, which I, I find an interesting idea to ponder and something I'm definitely going to have to consider in the future. I don't have, I don't have like a concrete, you know, idea or answer about that, but it is something I want to, I want to think more about. So,
0: Mm. yeah.
1: I, I miss picking up your Last Jedi thread, which feels like a betrayal of all that I am and all that I believe. Um, so I will just say, I, I, do, I also love that moment in um, Last Jedi. And you know I think people quibble with the editing of that section because it's, it's kind of new and different for Star Wars. But I do think that the version of balance that Luke gives to Rey is, for me, the closest understanding of what I think Star Wars means by balance and to Jason's point, I think there are many characters in the prequels and in other media that misunderstand what balance is and how the the force may be out of balance. So um, I I don't I I do think there's a an imbalance here and. An imbalance doesn't mean that we're in trouble. It can be an overabundance of of goodness, right? And and maybe that's what the High Republic is. So as this era continues and and heads towards the darkness to come, maybe that's the powerful dark rousing to meet this powerful light.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's Mm -hmm. a great point. That's interesting. Um. Well, uh, what are some other what are some other elements or characters or whatever from this book that stood out to the two of you? Because I've I've raised some of the points that I found quite interesting. I mean, there's a million other things I, I could talk about, but I'm curious what else stood out to the two of you.
2: Leox Jossie, hmm. I love this guy. <laughs> I think he's a
1: hoot. Um, all right, all right, all right. Exactly.
2: <laughs> yeah. well, Claudia Gray says that. Uh, she she based him off a of 1990s matthew mcconaughey uh and a spaceship so you know that's that's kind of where he comes from but yeah i i think he's a i think he's a great character um just kind of funny and laid back total like pseudo hippie um except not as disconnected in some cases, I guess, I don't know. I just thought he was I thought he was fantastic. He he amused me. He also was sometimes the most uh competent and wisest character in the book uh at other times. So I I just thought he was a fantastic new character and I really want to get more of Leox Jassy. Um and and the vessel. The <laughs> so i i also thought the name of the ship was just funny too you know it's the vessel just the vessel that's it (laughs) (laughs) but
1: um Um, i so that was something that her basing him on matthew mcconaughey was something that came out between my two readings of this and it it totally works because if you're approaching this knowing that that's who he's meant to be you can only hear that voice when you when you read him um I was just excited for him and the vessel and all those characters, because I was excited to get a peek at smugglers during this time. Um, you know, I love the Jedi and I love the focus on the Jedi, but I think I even said on our light of the Jedi that I wanted more of the underworld of the kind of the, that side of the galaxy, the, the Han Solo side. And I was excited to get a little taste of that. Um, these do seem like pretty, uh, good smugglers, right. Benevolent smugglers, like, uh, the crew of the Merricks from Master and Apprentice. Um, but I was excited to see that that is going on here. Um, and the piece about um, uh, the the girl whose name I'm blanking on, Affy? Uh, Affy, sorry, yeah, Affy, um, she challenges her mom. And uh, you know, get well. Her foster mom, rather, mm-hmm. like her her guardian, um, and gets her uh, arrested by the Republic. And while that is done for the right reasons, it's very much a power play in the underworld, right? Um, and there's uh, the Alex Segura Podamrin book. That's essentially kind of Zori's past, uh dealing with the head of uh her criminal organization. So um I saw some nice resonance there and I'm excited to to learn more about them. I don't think we've gotten confirmation of the vessel coming back at all yet, but um Claudia Gray is working on something else, so hopefully it will involve them.
2: I I I love that crew. You know, Affy is fun, Leox is a hoot, and Geode is just I it's one of those things where like as I was listening to the book I'm just picturing how this would be filmed and like I just want this rock to be like just sitting there you know uh just like it never moves on camera like it just mm. it's, it's just stationary on camera every time you see it and so like w- w- <laughs> like the idea that he he does different things and and has this wild side to him uh <laughs> and and all that fun stuff I I just thought it was hilarious. Um, And I always, I was just always picturing it. Like he doesn't actually like move when anybody looks at him. And so nobody like can tell if Afi and Leox are just messing with everyone or not. (laughs) Um, You know, that, that was kind of like the idea that I, I had just visually picking, you know, picturing all of this. Um, And the crew of the vessel, so uh, obviously, of course, Geode is an actual living being, Um, just a very different living being than we've ever experienced before.
1: So and it's so funny how she, you you can just like you said you picture those camera cuts and she describes it with a different emotion every time but he's always just still right like yeah. Geo just sat there smugly and Geo seemed a little disappointed in himself as he yeah. sat there in silence and it's like wait a minute like so it is it was it was very funny and very well done
2: yeah, yeah. It, there there's the moment when uh, Comac is bringing uh, Dez back to the vessel. Uh, and he it's like you know you see something move in the darkness and uh when he looked again it was it wasn't there and he was just like but he couldn't have saw what he saw could it geode no, <laughs> no. so like the the mental image i had in my head of that scene is like you know he's you know making his way through all the the chaos and mayhem and we just get like quick shots of different uh you know things at the station just going haywire or whatever and in one of those shots Geode is like in the middle of you know it's like headed down the hall except he's just you know the, the things just standing there and then it cuts back to Comac and he's like wait did I just see what I and he looks back again and he's Geode's not there anymore so like that was the mental image I had of that sequence so I was like ah, this is this, I want to see these things I want to see all of these stories visually now like, that is how much I've enj- enjoyed The High Republic so far, is I want to see these in movie or TV or animated form. Like, I, I want to see these fully fleshed out, um, which I know probably won't happen, but that is how much I'm loving these stories So and these characters.
0: Mm-hmm. So I, got
2: I, okay. I will say I, I thought it would be really like the mental image I had in my head of like, OK, well, what, if we had a High Republic TV show, would we like have it broken up into the different stories or would we just have it chronologically and cut back between the different stories as we went through the, the timeline? So I don't know. I think that part would be.
0: All I Funny. know is if we ever got a live-action High Republic and they chose to put Geode in this any of the stories, I feel like the only person that can play Geode is Dwayne Johnson. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he, is,
2: he is the yes. rock. So. Yes. <laughs> I, I approve of this casting.
1: Uh, <laughs> Um, Feels very much like Vin Diesel doing Groot, right? Yeah. You might yeah, just have like The Rock mutter sometimes or something like that.
2: <laughs> Sparkle a little,
1: yeah. <laughs>
0: um, I want to say real quick about uh, my favorite crew of the vessel was uh, was Afi. Um Leox, I thought was great, and Geode was just he to me was just weird Star Wars, which I enjoyed. Um, but I really like Affy's story. I like the fact that she is someone who comes to learn. You know, about her, her parents were these indentured servants who risk had to risk their lives because of, you know, her adoptive mother's kind of shady business. Um, and I just I found Afy to be an incredibly powerful character because she chooses to really, you know, upend her entire world by turning in Scover. Um, you know, it's 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 going to bring everything she knows crumbling down. But she doesn 't care because it 's the right thing to do um, and, I, and I love the payoff of that is the fact that you know early in the book she always indicates that her favorite vet, her favorite ship in the entire you know the binkover guild is 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 the vessel, so she ends up getting that she she kind of is rewarded for her bravery to to speak up and speak out against these uh, you know despicable practices um and so I really like that about her her character arc is that she is someone who's willing to kind of sacrifice her her world um in order to do the right thing and to speak up for the people that that are kind of being taken advantage of by her adoptive mother.
1: Yeah. Such a good a good lesson to give to kids for a YA book, right? Because you know, when they take the trip back to Coruscant, she spends that whole time with her adoptive mother in the lap of luxury, right? Tasting some version of ice cream for the first time and right. and a, a luxurious hotel. And you realize later that this is her temptation. This is she mm. can see plainly, like if she just keeps her mouth shut, this is the life she can enjoy forever. The the utmost comfort, the utmost delicacies and so on and so then when she does commit to her values i think it's such an important message and and like you said a really key moment in who she is and and what she could do i i I really do hope that they continue her story because i'd be interested to see is are there members of the guild who are going to want retaliation on her um Mm. is she just going to be a kind of transport for hire uh with with the vessel or or what um i think there's a lot of interesting potential there that's a great point.
0: I didn't even think about that. Yeah, well, I
2: mean the guild is now completely dismantled. Like it, it, it's interesting to to think that, you know, um the the legacy run is part of this guild and you know, it's the one that sort of in a way is responsible for a lot of the the great disaster that happened to the galaxy. And while the bind guild was a looking to be able to not only recover but in a sense be able to in greatly increase their influence and and uh you know prosperity within the republic even after such a tragedy um the fact that she basically just wipes that all out in an instant mm. you know is is very interesting um and you know, I love that Leox recognizes that she did the hard thing but the right thing and gives his ship to her. Like I don't think that rule that he cites at the end, um, that you know, guild, you know, representative is, you know, top officer on on the ship, even though he's the captain. I, I think he made that up um <laughs> in order to uh give her the ship. Uh but uh yeah, I thought that was really cool, so
0: yeah, he seems
1: and not to go um you know you go Carl
0: oh, I was going to say you well, just that leox his way of relating to her is I think is also quite beautiful, um while mm-hmm. Scover is kind of her adoptive mother, Leox is really a, more of a parental unit. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious how much he may have known about what was going on with all the indentured servants, if he even knew the truth of what happened to, to Afi's uh, parents. Um, but I think, you know, again, at the end of that story, she, she kind of like, I like the way you put it, Greg, she ultimately rejects kind of the, the pretty things of what this life could offer her. Um, and I think that really, uh, resonates for leox and she kind of you know it's it's that typical star wars trope they they find each other and they find this family um just among mm-hmm. themselves um and it seems like geode's going to be part of that too <laughs> so
1: <laughs> yeah well and it's it's very star wars rpg right i mean dave filoni said when they were starting up rebels it was what he always dreamed of a show which is like a bunch of cool characters together in a ship going on adventures and seeing what happens, and so I'm I'm encouraged that that's another version of this, and and it's very much like the Ghost or or one of these other famous Star Wars ships. Um, what I was gonna say is is not to go uh, Wampa's lair after dark. Um, but when I read this book, I thought it was very striking that they mentioned sex by name, which doesn't happen in Star Wars uh, ever, I don't think. Um, so, uh, and that that's part of this conversation. I immediately thought fans would get up in arms about. But, um, you know, it to me kind of means we're moving into a more realistic world. Um, In one of the recent Padme books, they were very specific about mentioning um, when the queen had her period. And, And it's interesting that I think in writing towards YA, you want to give young readers that kind of realism and not seem like you're hiding the world for them. But as an old school Star Wars fan, I'm like, "What are you doing? I'm, I'm innocent. <laughs> like, I, I get the vapors, and I'm like, sex in Star Wars, and they're just talking about it. Like, my God." Um, so uh, it is very funny to think about this as this new defining moment, and and we seem to be catering more to to the real world, and and I think that's healthy for fandom. My my jokes aside, but it is uh, certainly seems to be part of the choice is They're not going to shrink away from real world issues anymore, or or present a fairy tale version of the world.
2: Yeah. well and and that is definitely something that is uh, of this uh particular genre the the y a genre is, yeah that, that kind of thing is talked about a lot, and so that's that's sort of normal for Claudia Gray to be writing in uh to her story, so uh, it would make sense that she would bring it here into Star Wars too so
0: I like the scene um kind of in the same vein the scene when they're flying back. At the end of the story, back to Coruscant for good, and they have Dez. And Des is obviously all sorts of messed up from his time with the Drengir. And, you know, they've tried a few, like, the I think Orla tried like a, a Jedi healing thing, and it kind of worked. He's, you know, they, they keep saying, well, he's not getting worse, but he's not really getting better. So then um, Leox finally goes and exposes their hidden cargo, which is a bunch mm-hmm. of spice plants. And he puts some, he because he tells them earlier, he tells Orla it's like, it's medicinal. Um, and he puts some of the leaves on Des, and it immediately starts to heal him. And he goes, see, I told you it was medicinal. I just, yeah, I loved yeah. that moment. <laughs> <laughs> Made me crack up so much. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I think it is good for Star Wars. Like why do we pretend we're we're in a world without sex, drugs, and rock and roll? So uh <laughs> let's let's embrace it a little more. Um yeah. I think I think it's fun. Um and, and certainly I, I, I think Jason's point is exactly right. That's what YA does is it teaches a lot of its fans about the world and how to deal with these issues and, and such. So I think it's I think it's great.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um well, for the, you know, just for the sake of time, I I, I feel like maybe if you all want to say, I, I hate limiting it, but because there's, there's so much of this book we didn't even touch on. Um, and again, I think that this is, this is all very good news. I think the High Republic is just giving us really, really powerful stories. Um, and I, I, I want to say, and I, I think I made this comment on Twitter, but. Um, my favorite thing so far of the High Republic, all three books, is I feel they've done a great job of setting up your traditional Star Wars three, um, three arcs in a book, um, you know, or three acts, you know, to each book. I, I feel like each story, uh, Test of Courage, Light of the Jedi and, and Into the Dark all had very clearly three acts, which I absolutely love in Star Wars stories. Um uh, and most Star Wars movies have them, except for, I would say, Rise of Skywalker really doesn't. Solo doesn't even really have that. But the rest of them, for the most part, do. Last Jedi is a little little off, too, in my book. But, um, but I love that kind of just traditional three-act uh, Star Wars story. And I felt like all three books kind of uh, did that very well. Um, but just anything else that was kind of big that you wanted to bring up about the book? I, um, either of you. The Kyber Arch. Mm. Mm. I thought that
2: was fantastic. Um, the, the idea that, you know, there's this place inside the Jedi temple, you know, in in a meditation area where all the Kyber crystals of fallen Jedi have been, you know, built and formed into this ever growing arch, um, that people will cross as, you know, as a meditation, um, I thought was fantastic and beautiful and, and amazing. And then the lesson that wreath has to, to learn about it, you know, that Jorah gives to him at the beginning, because we, we get, you know, scenes with, with Jorah, Molly and wreath, you know, the predate um, light of the Jedi, the, the book. Um, And, and she tells him, you know, she asks him, why can't any Jedi cross the Kyber arch alone? and, he even does it at some point in the book, like after, you know, he's lost Dez and finds out that uh, his master Jorah is dead. Um, He goes there to try and and figure it out. And it doesn't seem to make any sense because he is able to cross it. Like physically, he's able to, to, to do it. Um, But then he finally gets it at the end. But no, you can't do it alone because of the people that we lost that gave us the crystals to make this arch and then the people who took the time and care to build it as a remembrance. So um, I just thought that was a very interesting and beautiful and fantastic element to this story and, uh, you know, construct within the temple I thought was just a beautiful thing. So.
1: I I agree with that. And I'll just say it reminded me a lot of um, the, I think it's the foyer at Langley, the headquarters of the CIA has a wall where the names of every single fallen agent are chiseled into the the stonework. And it's that same thing to remind the agents as they enter, that these are, you know, the people who helped us get this far and we're going to keep going in their name. And it felt very much like that, but also had this beautiful spiritual side because because we also know Kyber are living and that those crystals had a real attachment to their um, their their Jedi. And so to fuse them together and to keep them together just as the souls of the fallen merge back into the cosmic force is is a really beautiful image. And it was really nicely thought out by by Claudia Gray.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, that point you just made, Greg, even kind of goes back to the point you've made a few times throughout the episode, which is this idea that we're building generation, right? That the, the layers of history, um, yeah. that kind of always, uh, build up to- on top of one another. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well,
1: I'm resisting the temptation to talk about Mission Impossible movies now that I mentioned the CIA, but I'll I'll move <laughs> on to to the book uh, and skip the second greatest film franchise of all time. Uh, and really, I think I've said a lot of my thoughts on the book. Um, I completely agree with everything you guys said about you know the the beauty of Claudia Gray's writing is that she gets characters and for me, the worst Star Wars books forget the characters. They get too interested in the pew, pew, zappy, zappy, and forget that there are people here. And it's the people that make us love Star Wars, right? We we love Luke Skywalker. We love Obi-Wan Kenobi. We love Ray. Um, I didn't say Ray Skywalker. I just can't, but I, I love Rey. Uh, so, um, so I think that you know, these authors, as, as you said, Carl, have demonstrated their commitment to these characters and to really making that side of this galaxy matter as much as the larger side. Um, and, you know, I was intimidated the other day. I was listening to DJ Older gave a great interview on Octo Radio. And one of the things he said is um, the, the host was saying, like, oh, and there's just so many characters. And DJ Older said, like, you don't even know, man. Like, there's so many more coming. Um, And I was really intimidated to imagine how many more characters they could be and how hard it is to track them. And I already feel like I'm missing some of those references. Sorry, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, so, I, so I'm so i already feeling like I'm missing those references when they refer to Master So-and-So. I probably should know who that is, but I've already forgotten from the other books. Um, but I, I really just, I so admire that they're all taking those two paths. Let's make this big and grand and totally epoch-defining, but also let's make sure that we don't neglect the intimate and the small and keep those relationships at the heart of what we do here. Um, and I just can't wait for so much more into the dark or sorry uh high republic i've already pre-ordered my next round so i'm I'm just chomping at the bit for june is when they come out
0: mm-hmm. yeah i i i'm honestly just sad that we have to wait that long <laughs> <laughs> right? yeah. um yeah it's fun it's funny too because uh looking at um, how kind of old legends books used to be published. They, you would get like an entire, so if they were giving you a new star Wars trilogy of, of books, you'd get them all one month, you know, all spaced a month apart. <laughs> so, um, mm. but it is, it's nice that we're at least getting essentially like three books at a time every time, right? Like we're going to get a YA a adult novel and a middle grade every, it seems like with each release. So at least you're getting a few things at once as opposed to, um, having to wait forever for everything. So, so that's nice. And, and we
1: also, we get the manga in June too. So we add another form as well as the ongoing comics the whole time too. So it's so funny that Star Wars fans are getting so much right now and all we want is more, more, <laughs> more. But uh, yeah, it's it's hard to wait. I, uh, I will not reveal my source for my review copies, but I might have already started pestering me like, can you watch your mail? Cause I would really like to get the next books early again. So <laughs> we'll see. I'm hopeful, but uh, we'll see. <laughs>
0: uh, yeah. I can't wait for, for round two of them. Um, very exciting. So, well, I think that's, that is a very good general with uh, some fun cool. details and, and, and hijinks here for into the dark. Um, if you've listened through the whole thing and not read the book, hopefully this makes you want to go read the book even more. Um, and, uh, if you have read the book and you want to share some of your thoughts about it, we'd love to hear them. So certainly share those with us through our social media. We always love to hear, hear those, um, inputs. Um, before we go again, a reminder that coming this Monday, March the 1st, we'll start our, This is madness tournament. So every single day, Monday through Friday, you can vote on two. uh, Well, essentially there'll be four scenes every day. You get to vote your favorite of, of them. So you can do that on either our Twitter or um, follow us on our Instagram and and do it in our stories every day. Um, I can't wait to get this started. And like I said, as well, if you want to enter for a chance to win your own copy of into the dark, simply uh, when you see the tweet go out, simply like it, retweet it, follow it, all that stuff. Or simply write a review in the iTunes store for the show and be entered for a chance to win. And we'll announce the winner of Into the Dark on next week's episode. Um, did nice. I miss anything, Jason? I feel like I got everything.
2: I, I think we got it all. Um, it, Greg, if people want to follow along with any of your antics or hijinks, where can they do that?
1: Uh, my address is – no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I <laughs> – I, i'm getting to the punchy time of the night um so uh i am on twitter at ion canon e-y-e-o-n-c-a-n-o-n um i absolutely love engaging with uh fans on twitter and, and kind of debating ideas and bouncing back and forth and i really appreciate all the larians who reached out um after my last appearance and wanted to talk about a couple things so i'd love for you to give me a follow i just passed 700 closing in on Seven oh five, I think. Uh, so <laughs> slowly growing my account, um, and I also I'm trying to become a professional podcast guest, which is not a paying gig, but is a lot of fun. So I often post uh, different shows I've been on. Uh, Wampus Lair was my first and will always be my true love, but I've, <laughs> I've moonlight on a few other sources, uh, and I've been invited to some cool upcoming projects I can't talk about yet, but I will promote there. So I on Canon on Twitter or, uh, Instagram.
0: Excellent. Um, and, and with the fact that we are starting the, this is madness tournament, we won't be doing matchups or polls again until April. Uh, because again, you will have matchups to vote on every single day for a month. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah. so hopefully you participate there, but we won't be doing any main ones on the show in, until, until April. Um, Jason and I also have a really fun schedule of shows for you in, in March, so uh, we'll share more about those at the start of next week's episode. Um, I've I've alluded to this a couple of times already. I know it's only February, but you know we're kind of building in October to our 10 year anniversary. So uh, March is going yeah. to be a little bit of a, a Star Wars journey um, tale for the two of us, but by talking about moments from Star Wars that have defined our fandom over the years. So uh, we felt like it'd be really fun to do that in March with the with the matchup uh madness bracket because we're going to be looking at all sorts of moments from star wars so when better to do that than in march so uh hopefully you'll en- you'll enjoy that uh the upcoming shows because i'm excited to talk about all of these things
2: <laughs>
0: yes definitely
2: all right well i think that's going to wrap this up uh carl uh do we give all the social media for everybody who wants to contact us about anything including the topics on this episode
0: uh we did not um but it's uh we're on twitter at wampas lair follow us on instagram at the underscore wampas lair uh email us at WampaslairPodcast podcast at gmail.com and we are on facebook however a bit inactive um uh you can find us there at wampas lair podcast yes
2: all oh, right well jason
0: this is episode 415 i don't know if i told you that at the beginning
2: you, you did <laughs> okay I, I got it i got it yes uh all right, well, that's going to wrap up this episode of the Wampas Lair podcast. Uh, thank you, Greg, once again, for coming on and uh, traversing the High Republic with us once again. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 415 of the Wampas Lair podcast, Into the Dark. For Carl and Greg, I'm Jason. And we'll see you next time here in the Wampus Lair.